0: Most interactions we have at restaurants actually involve some degree of lying. I know that sounds like some weird conspiracy theory here, but you're just going to have to hear me out.
1: So today, Greg and I are talking to Bill Addison, who actually is one of our colleagues here at Eater. But unlike me and Greg, who sit in an office all day. He is on an airplane or in really, really cool restaurants all over the country.
0: Yeah, Bill is a proper man of mystery. Most people don't know what he looks like. He travels the country eating at restaurants to build this list called the National 38, which is our first ever collection of what we believe are the country's essential restaurants.
1: It's kind of a dream job, and I think we're all a little bit jealous of him.
0: So, Helen, there's something I wanted to talk with you about. It's something I've been kind of bouncing around my brain. I've actually never talked with anybody about this because I only recently became aware of this. But it is that every restaurant meal involves lying. And this lying, these lies, are not actually on behalf of the restaurant they're on behalf of the diner. They're on behalf of you and I.
1: I don't know. Maybe I just have a really dark heart, but I think that the vast majority of human interaction is based on lying.
0: Oh man, I didn't even think about that. This actually might apply to everything. <laughs> all transactions. <laughs> but,
1: but lay it on me. I wanna I wanna hear I wanna hear it. All
0: right. So here's my theory about restaurant lying, that there are three essential lies that you tell as a diner basically every time you go to a restaurant of a certain caliber. Okay, I'm so I'm super psyched to hear this. Okay, so one one it starts with have you ever dined with us before? And I always say yes, even if I haven't been with them before. Because I know that if you say no, they're going to tell you something about like how they s- they have small plates and you have to order. and like the this- spiel. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I find it useful to get the spiel sometimes. It, it helps you understand what this restaurant thinks it is. But
0: I'll say that if I know what the restaurant is, if I read a review of it, if I've written about it or something and I know exactly what to expect. I will just say that I've been there to avoid that thing because you have to kind of sit and be like an audience and you have to be really polite. And of course, you know, always will be. But like rather get to the part where they take your drink order, where they they get the food coming out.
1: So 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 I don't think that this is a a bad lie. Like I, I personally don't do it. But I think that so far the first type of lie, this is a victimless crime. It's
0: a victimless crime, although I will say that it's a little disturbing to think about how quickly and without even thinking about it, I will lie. You know,
1: this is more about you than it does about restaurant culture.
0: I guess (laughs) I guess it is. I guess it is. Uh,
1: Okay, so so lie number two.
0: Lie number two comes if you order a glass of wine and they pour you a little sample and then you taste it and they say, you know, how is it? How is everything? Unless it's a corked bottle, which has happened maybe like exactly once in my entire life. I'll be like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. This is great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think I do that, too.
0: And I don't – I'm not, like, a huge wine person. Like I said, I can only tell if it's corked, basically.
1: That's all there is, I think. I mean, there, there are – obviously, some people taste a wine to make sure that it hits all of the right sort of, like, nuances and weird, like, detailed meshing with the food in front of you. But, like, does it taste good to you, yes or no, is, is the question. And I think as long as you're saying, yes, it does, in fact, taste good to me when it tastes good to you, you're not really lying, like Except
0: sometimes I am though. Sometimes I don't even like it.
1: I think you're allowed to say no when that happens. Yeah, but you've already
0: ordered it, right?
1: Well, that's the point of a taste. I don't know. I mean, this is this is a good question. I think I w- I would be curious to get some like no bullshit sommelier to answer this.
0: Right. I mean, I guess it's different if they pour you a, a taste of a bottle that's already open, like a wine by the glass, and you're like, no, I'm <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. But I bet that's a pretty small percentage of people that actually do that, right? It's kind of embarrassing or something.
1: I've been with people who have sent back glasses of wine and I have always wanted to, like, go full murder-suicide whenever that happens. <laughs> I mean, it's right. it's mortifying. There are ways to do it without being a dick. Mm-hmm. There are. I think that, you know, if you're nice and you have a good rapport with your server and you've, like, proven yourself over the course of the evening to not be that table mm-hmm. you can you know have a sip of something that you've like maybe conversed about a little especially if the if like the sommelier is like hey it's like it's a little weird but i think you're going to like it like if you've set up this expectation that allows you to say no then you can be like oh man like i appreciate the idea you're going for but like this is just not working with my palate but again again i feel like the victim of of this lie is you like if you don't like your glass of wine you should you should, esp- should, you should should grow
0: th- grow a pair and just say something. Yeah. But I feel like in that split second where, where you have to make the assessment, my brain can't process whether or not I think I really love it or like it. I could just tell that it's not bad, that it's not like poisoned wine. It's not wine that's off, yeah. you know?
1: Okay. All right. So what's the third lie?
0: So oh, so the third lie, and this has been written about a million times, and people will complain about it forever. But it's that thing when the server comes over after you've had, like, four bites of your food, and they're like, how is everything? My reaction is always, like, effusive, actually. It's always like, oh, it's awesome. Thank you. Even when it's bad, though. Because if it's bad, it's usually because the restaurant's bad. It's not like, oh, well... I wanted my steak black and blue and this is just
1: this is the real lie of the restaurant experience. I think that of the three types of lies that you have very brilliantly identified, this is this is the true lie that all diners tell. I don't I don't think that there is a circumstance in which it is okay to say "eh, it's fine." and then like expect your meal to just sort of proceed in a normal way like not just the way you're interacting with your server but like the 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 person you are presenting yourself to be to your dining companion is like this weird nitpicky strange like nothing would you ever do that on a date Like, of course you tell that lie like we're not monsters
0: right it's just kind of weird it's all this sort of language though like, if you were to correct it in some bizarre alternate universe, I mean, it would just creep people out too much. But instead of those questions, you know, if they started the meal, like, do you want to hear how we think you should order?
1: hmm Yeah, that's good.
0: Question number two, does the wine taste corked? Okay. Question number three, is the food poison? I don't know. I don't know what question <laughs> no, number three true. is.
1: Like, them, but I... Well, I wonder how much of it is also like the restaurant sort of allowing the diner an opportunity to be unhappy so that you don't stiff your server on the tip or go online and just like be a dick on Yelp.
0: You know, it's really funny. I had a meal recently at the new Danny Meyer restaurant. He's the king of hospitality. And, you know, he really is. And his restaurants are awesome. They're great. And you get that special, you get that special experience. But my wife had a non-alcoholic you know like a mocktail and she took a sip of it and didn't li- really like it and said something to me be like oh, that's kind of sweet and i could see behind her that our waiter heard that like from you know, like 10 feet away oh my god like his like ears perked up like a spidey sense style thing yeah and then he like came around the table and like was like oh, so
1: the whatever
0: the drinks called
1: he was leading you into the criticism yeah oh that's fucked up and she was like oh it's good it's fine yeah Well, I feel like that's his, like, if he, if you saw him perk up his ears, this is like human psychology, right? Like, I think that, that the question, how is everything, the answer always has to be positive. Like, that's the nature of that dynamic. That's like saying, how are you today? And you respond fine, even if like your house just burned down. Like, it's just like the, the pulley test of human society. But like, what he should have done is said, hey, are you sure you're liking that? I couldn't help but notice that you made a little bit of a face. Like, make it okay. Like, have a human moment.
0: Right. You know,
1: be like... I'd be really happy to bring you something else. Like our priority is your happiness, not like that we have to do as little work as possible.
0: I fully believe that he was ready to be like, "Yeah, we'll get you another, whatever. We won't charge you for this. We'll get you another one." But he
1: was setting her up to introduce criticism into the conversation. Yeah, he could have been the one to to start it out. I mean, maybe he didn't want to like be like, "Hey, I was." Well,
0: I think that he couldn't just been like hey, I was creeping on (laughs) you over by the column over there. I was spying on you guys. Totally
1: staring at the two of you. Yeah. Couldn't help but notice as I creepily stared at your face while you ate that you were not super happy.
0: It's just a weird balance. The thing that disturbs me about it is just how, like, I don't even care or think about the fact that I am lying to a complete stranger as often as three times during the course of a meal. It's just like a weird thing. It's like, what did you do last night? Oh, I went to this place. I lied to a stranger while eating some food.
1: <laughs> I think, I mean, I, I want to say that that makes you sound sort of like a psychopath, but maybe maybe all humans are psychopaths at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> at the end of the at, meal.
1: At the end of the meal, we're all just horrible, evil people who lie for fun and profit.
0: So we have a very special guest in the Eater studio today. It's Bill Addison, Eater's restaurant editor. He has uh, been traveling all over the place. He spent most of the last year on the road writing about restaurants and compiling the first ever National 38.
1: The National 38 is Eater's, I mean, you should know about this, but in case you don't, the National 38 is Eater's list of the most essential restaurants in America. An essential is a really interesting word, and maybe Bill can tell us a little bit more about that. But welcome, Bill.
2: Hi there. It's good
0: to see you guys. It's good to be in New York. Yeah, we always, we always love when Bill Addison rolls into town.
1: <laughs> so, Bill, tell us a little bit about this idea of the essential 38.
2: Well, I took that word very seriously, that adjective essential. Um, for me, uh, the first year in the job, where a lot of critics are always looking for what's new, what's hot, what's buzzy. It was a pleasure for me when sort of most of us are looking right as restaurant critics to look left, to really look and see what's essential without being necessarily new or buzzy. Certainly some fresh voices in food today popped up on that list. Rose's Luxury in Washington, D.C. Is, D. is one that immediately comes to mind. But then there are other places like Galatoire's in New Orleans where I went and, and I've been there many times over the years, but I feel like the kitchen is particularly strong right now. It was maybe the best lunch I've ever had there, and I felt like that had a place. So Essential was about thinking of the country as a whole and, and how the collage all fit together to sort of Um, create this map for people to eat in 2015. So I sort of thought of it as this map to um, lead people toward where they should eat in 2015.
1: So you have one of those sort of dream jobs where you literally are traveling the country constantly in a different city pretty much every week eating through the most interesting, the newest, the hippest, the oldest, the coolest, the most sort of superlative in one direction and another restaurant, and trying to hone in on this notion of essentiality. Who are they essential to, though? I mean, are you speaking to, like, a person in New York who wants to plan their trip to Portland, or are you speaking to someone who is coming from overseas, or just sort of someone who's interested in figuring out what the culinary story is in America?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Part of what makes putting that map together so intricate is that I am trying to think about the broadest possible audience. So I guess for me, it's it's the modern informed diner and however you want to take that. So I feel like a 25-year-old can find... Princess Hot Chicken on in Nashville or Cochon Butcher and if they're looking for something that's not crazy expensive then they can they can find that and hopefully digging into those places might lead them to other great places. Hopefully that these restaurants that I chose were conversation starters, you know, and then the the opposite end is true for a really special occasion. Blue Hill at Stone Barns really just speaks to me as the quintessential modern fine
0: dining experience, experience being the key word there because it's so much more than just a meal. Before you started this project, did you feel like you had a pretty good grasp of the the landscape, uh, the cities, the big food trends, and the big Like, have you spent a lot of time traveling? So I've kicked around
2: a little bit as a restaurant critic. I started my career in Atlanta at the Alternative News Weekly there, Creative Loafing. And then I spent time as a critic at the San Francisco Chronicle and at the Dallas Morning News. And then wound my way back to Atlanta to work at Atlanta Magazine for the last five years before my job at Eater. So, I mean, frankly, there are, I travel all the time. And it's one reason why this is particularly a dream job for me. I'm not sure that everyone would be as thrilled about the travel schedule as I am. I'm on the road for three weeks out of every month. And I'm lucky that I have a personal life that allows me to have that freedom to wander and and eat. Lots and lots and lots. (laughs) Um, But, you know, frankly, because I was in the South, because I'm very involved in the Southern Foodways Alliance, I get around the South a lot. And so that region I'm particularly knowledgeable about. But some cities, Minneapolis, did I know that place well? No, I lived there briefly in 1995 and the cold scared me away so quickly that I've never spent much time there again. So it's been fun because I've I kicked around the country a lot in my 20s, I am kind of familiar with America, and so it's been a real pleasure professionally as well as personally for me to show back up in these cities that I have known at some point in my life and to be reacquainted with them. I was interested in food from an early age, but let's say in Phoenix, you know, I could afford Pizzeria Bianco, and it's been great to to be able to get back to try his pizza again 20 years later and see that he's even evolved into beautiful pastas made with durum wheat grown in Arizona and still making some of the finest pizza in America. And I went to college in Boston, so it was great to go back there and, and not eat like a college student. Where'd you go to college? I went to Berkeley College of Music for vocal performance.
1: Not a food major. <laughs> not a food major.
2: And then I transferred to Emerson College, which is where I got my degree in acting. Wow. Yeah. Well,
1: that's great for being an anonymous critic. You yeah. Can, you have to adopt fake names and play this character.
0: Mask work and.
2: <laughs> good. I'm comfortable with all of that.
0: <laughs> yes. Although
2: I'm not claiming that I am um, Ruth Reichel 90s era disguise guy. I don't know. That's that long
1: flowing wig you're wearing right now is pretty. Yeah. It, well, <laughs> you, look, <laughs>
2: you look lovely, Bill. I, I mean, you know, this is my Ruth wig, actually. So I've got, you know, a shorter, sassier. Gail Green one at home too.
0: So I feel like a lot of food writers that I meet have some sort of experience working in restaurants at some point in their lives, and maybe something that sparked their interest. Was that? Did you ever have any experience like that, or how did you like get into food? What was your What was your aha moment? Your so gateway I, drug? Yeah. yeah.
2: So I have a younger brother. Um, there are four of us in my family. And we all have such different personalities. And and growing up, we we all sort of would inhabit a different corner of the house, really. And my father was gone a lot, working. He was in real estate and he's a politician. And um, when we would go out to a nice restaurant, it was really the one time as a family when our personalities meshed perfectly. And, and we all had a place at the table. You know, my brother was always kind of the, the rough-and-tumble kid who was interested in ordering venison or elk. And my father liked his... Um, veal Oscar or filet mignon and a grand marnier souffle for dessert and my mother liked the fish and it better come out hot or she was going to send it back and I was always the kid who could even without looking at the prices like pick out the priciest thing on the menu and be like (laughs) I'll have the lobster mousseline please (laughs) you know and so so we I so I had that love as an early age and when I went to college I was sad not to be able to experience that anymore and so I began working in restaurants when I was trying to find my way as a, a singer and, and an actor and, and long story short never really found my way as a singer and an actor and I had always had a kind of a side interest in writing that grew more as I kicked around the country kind of a little aimlessly. It was It was my way to keep connected with myself, to, to have a sense of home while I was kicking around. And eventually I, I got a gig as a business writer and when I was turning 30, I thought, you know, I wanna do something that I feel really passionate about. It was uh, around the time that 9-11 happened as well. And so like a lot of other people, I was sort of considering The fact that i have this one life and what do i want to do with this and i'd always been fascinated by restaurant critics i was that guy who gave everyone else recommendations about where to eat and so i i stuck my toe in the water and it took me about three months to get my break at the alt weekly for a first freelance gig and the editor liked what i did and then um, about nine months later after i sort of became their weekly critic she put in her notice and told the editors this guy knows way more about food than I do, so <laughs> hire him, and they did, and, and here I am.
0: When you were getting started, did you have any, like, favorite food writers or favorite critics or anybody?
2: I had a binder full of Ruth Reichel's reviews. Um, there were clippings, and they were um, pieces that I printed off the internet, and I would read it like I read a novel. And, and because of that, I sort of inherently, you know, when you're a careful reader, it helps you as a writer, and I had kind of absorbed the structure. And I loved Ruth's way with telling a story as part of a review. Um, that that appealed to me. I, I It helped me develop an eye for other restaurant critics who are great storytellers. Jonathan Gold, of course. Allison Cook at the Houston Chronicle was an early favorite as well. So I, I definitely wanted to be someone who told a good story and not just... Um, recommend the turbo over the halibut.
1: I think that's in a lot of ways the the sort of secret of food criticism. You know, Greg and I are both food writers, but we're not professional eaters in quite the same way that you are. I mean, both of us at various points in our career have written critically about restaurants, but we're not like anonymous restaurant critics. There are pictures of us all over the internet and we don't go out and like, you know, pass sort of the official judgment on restaurants. But what you do is basically that. And and people, I don't know about you, Greg, but whenever I tell people I work in food, the first thing they say is, oh, you review restaurants.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's still people, friends and family or whatever that I talk to many times and they're like, oh, so you got any new reviews coming out? <laughs> it's
1: like, no, that's not what I do. But what you were saying, Bill, about structure and storytelling I think is, is the key to that. When we talk about, you know, sort of shitty Yelp reviews or we talk about sort of like citizen Review blogs. I mean, sometimes they're quite wonderful and insightful, but more often than not, they're just these chronological rundowns of like, and then I had this and here's what it tasted like. And then I had this and here's what it tasted like. And what Ruth Reichel did that I found so transforming when I was, you know, a young food writer trying to find my way in it. And what you do and what I think Jonathan Gold and Alison Cook and all of these incredible critics who are working today managed to do is create this story this context and not just say like the nut course follows the peach course follows the purple course but
2: right so that you can scan down a review and be like it's the fifth paragraph now we're on to desserts you know to do that is boring and i think the readers are smart these days we're a food country now and and so people want the reviews to follow their own minds in a way to kind of follow the discourse and the conversation while having that critical edge that informed critical edge so that you know there are ethics behind what we're doing and there is a sense of fairness to how we're approaching what we're doing and and let me be clear too you know um all throughout my career i've absolutely been one of those people who's gone to the restaurant two or three or four times formed an an opinion based on multiple experiences and then written about that what I'm doing for Eater now is a little different because I'm traveling the country. Um, I often go to restaurants one time, and so I I will report on a meal honestly, in in this job. But that doesn't mean that I'm going. I'm not assigning stars like my colleagues in New York, Ryan Sutton and Robert Sitsema are. I am giving more of an informed, contextual impression review, and that is. I think, you know, a a new direction, I think I'm grateful to have the context, the experience under my belt of the dozen years I was doing this before, so I understand what good, solid restaurant criticism is, what it means to give good reader service, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that helps me do this kind of travelogue review thing that I'm doing now.
1: It is really a travelogue. I read you religiously every week, <laughs> but I, it never occurred to me. And you're absolutely right that you are you're writing a great American road novel.
0: I mean, that's the, my favorite thing about what you do is that I feel like you always give a lot of context. And uh, I mean, you know, not to just blow smoke up your ass or something, but <laughs> you know, reading you know, reading the road to the 38. I I. I get curious about like cities and whole communities and restaurants that I just never knew anything about before. Thank you. It's good
2: to hear you say that. I, I'm always hopeful, you know, when I'm so entrenched in things, I, I worry sometimes like, does everyone know how great Chris Bianco is? and that He has four restaurants now. And it's always refreshing to hear that kind of feedback that, no, you know, I thought he was still that guy shoveling pizza in that one small <laughs> joint that kind of made him famous. So things change. And I feel like that's, An important part of journalism that often gets overlooked, kind of revisiting things and and keeping in touch with these important places that are percolating in their regions.
1: But a critic like you who's taking what is essentially the long view both of the entirety of the United States but also of the cities that you visit, gives you that additional perspective like i think that a new york based critic or a minneapolis based critic or a phoenix based critic would visit a restaurant and pass judgment on the restaurant and be very specific but but i i was really fascinated by the piece you wrote about miami for example mm-hmm. um i have been on the record historically in fact on the on the pages of eater.com saying that i think that miami is the most disappointing food city in america and i've probably get some haters for that, but I think also <laughs> whenever I've said that, there have been a lot of people who have been like, yes, it's so freaking awful. Like, Miami has so much potential, and then it fizzles out. And I thought you took a perspective on that city, like a long view, step back take on what I think is the worst food city in America. And you made me really excited to go visit it again.
2: Well, straight up, Miami is a hard restaurant. Town. That's just the way it is. It's a lot of restaurants imported from other parts of the country from successful chefs who are in empire building mode. And, you know, last year was about me traveling and kind of cranking out one single sort of impression review after another and Amanda Clude our editor in chief and I talked about doing stories this year that build more of a narrative about the cities that I'm in and so we kicked it off with Miami kind of trying to find where do you enter the culinary scene of Miami to have a satisfying experience there and I really thought looking for the latin flavors which has become such a huge cultural influence so much beyond the cuban culture that has been been entrenched there since the 1950s. Could could give readers kind of a fresh way in that might help them have a better experience there.
1: So, how did you find those restaurants? You land in Miami, and what's what's the process? Tell us. It, it doesn't have to be Miami if that was an outlier. No, no, like... that's
2: a great, that's a that's a good one. So, I, I mean, straight up, I I have friendships. The food writing community, the restaurant community, is pretty small, and so I ask the local restaurant critics for recommendations. Um, In a lot of the cities that I go to, we have our local eater editors on the ground. And so I ask them very specific questions. I read a lot on the Internet. I read through blogs. I drive through streets sometimes looking for interesting things going on, things that look fresh or things that look the opposite of fresh that might have potential and I'm just trying to put together this this working montage of of the idea I have in my head so I usually go in with the hypothesis like okay I went to Miami last year and Michelle Bernstein was about to close her flagship restaurant and I smelled the death in the air at that restaurant and so that wasn't (laughs) a great you know (laughs) I didn't have the greatest meal there and it was very disjointed there's a you know a good Thai restaurant in on Miami Beach but that's not always what you're looking for in Miami right so this time I wanted to come back and like dig in and say what can you come here and really find that that feeds
0: the local culture, but that would also be satisfying for a visitor. How do you process, you know, when you go to a restaurant, it just sucks. You don't like it. That's something I've heard from other critics is that it's hard because you just go to all these places and sometimes you just, there's nothing to get out of it. Right. You know? Yeah, for me, um, it's the places that that don't make an impression
2: that are the hardest and that, frankly, sometimes I'll skip reporting on altogether because it's not in, in service to what I'm doing. If you're traveling to Miami, do you need to know that this restaurant felt neither here nor there to me? Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I had an interesting experience in Miami where I went to a very upscale restaurant from a Colombian chef that was very new. And I was explicit that it was very new. But he was doing some molecular gastronomy shenanigans that felt very 2004 to me and and I, I called that out you know sometimes I just have to call it like I see it and, and not be bitchy or angry about it but just kind of lay it out because if I'm showing up and I have a one-time experience like that I assume other readers are going to be showing up curious about this new Colombian hot chef that
0: they've heard about uh, who was the chef what was the restaurant
1: I think Bill is too diplomatic to say that.
2: I, actually, it's not that I'm too <laughs> diplomatic to say it. I don't remember the name of it right off the top of my head. It was have,
1: that boring.
2: Yeah, uh, I do not. Let's can we look
0: it up and like pay, paste this in? Sorry, guys. I
1: actually think it's more interesting that you don't remember. You wrote
0: you wrote about it, or it didn't, oh, I wrote about you it. you wrote about it. I, it is. I, I remember I have,
2: reading this. Yep. since then I have been to San Diego, Tijuana, and Sonada, Tucson, Phoenix. Charleston, Atlanta, New York. I do not remember the name of that restaurant. It did not stick with me.
1: What? That's very telling. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I think if you'd had a super memorable meal you'd have been like, who is this dude? I'm searing this into my brain. He's one to watch. Right. But you know, reader service is interesting because criticism is I mean, there's a constant never-ending conversation. I think this like meta media world about what is criticism? What's the critic's responsibility? Especially in the, and I'm putting scare quotes and fake capital letters around this, like the age of the internet, where like, what does it mean that we're all critics now and everybody has Yelp and everybody has Instagram? Reader service really is everything. I think you have to be smart, you have to know about the food, you have to know about the context but ultimately is the do you, maybe I'm wrong maybe you disagree the purpose of a review is saying here's where you should spend your money and here's how you should spend it best
2: yeah I think restaurant critics are more vital than ever I think all the death knells about restaurant criticism are cyclical and I think they never stick for a minute it was oh look the readers comment on restaurant reviews online let's have readers do restaurant reviews you know some newspapers took that tactic and then the age of yelp where everyone's a critic but i mean now that yelp is so entrenched like you flip through that stuff and it doesn't mean anything it has no context going back to what we talked about before so a a critic can bring the whole picture alive and and tell a good story while you're doing that and that seems to be the most vital thing in in a restaurant review so i've feel like restaurant criticism is alive and well and if people read it online if people read it in print as long as it's from a good writer who is as careful about their facts
0: as they are about their word choices we're going to be around for a long time to come amen what are you sick of after a year on the road are you sick of any like dishes or trends or things you just saw popping up across the country
1: korean tacos everywhere
0: yeah i it's funny. I guess I just end up avoiding
2: those things that I'm sick of. You know what I mean? There's always Because you're up. smart, yeah. <laughs> but um, even I, – I keep getting tripped up in that too. Like even – I'm so sick of octopus and I don't want to order anymore. But then as soon as I say I'm sick of octopus, then I'll go – to a beautiful restaurant like Corazon de Tierra in Ensenada's wine valley where they did such a beautiful simple braised and grilled octopus with salsa verde splotted around the plate and and I just loved it all over again. So if something is done beautifully, I'm happy to eat it, but I I am pretty sick of octopus. I will never put another spoonful of creme brulee in my mouth again. I will never eat another molten chocolate cake. <laughs> you know, I worked as a pastry chef, so I'm
0: really picky about desserts and, and pretty angry when they're afterthoughts. Do you think there's some good work being done in desserts in general? I mean, I always feel like I actually order dessert. I'm not a sweets person, but I actually order dessert because I feel like I have to support the pastry chef. Yeah. Like the
1: industry of the pastry chef? <laughs> yeah, just Thank like there's so many restaurants like are cut, cutting them. Yeah, no, you know? it's like a scoop of ice cream or like cookies that they baked you know three days before, and they throw in the microwave before they bring it to the table.
2: Right, and when I see dessert menus like that, when it is tiramisu and molten chocolate cake and creme brulee and apple crisp, I just don't order dessert. I'm it's it'll be too depressing for me, but then when I know that the opposite, then I'll happily overorder desserts because I'm so excited that somebody is thinking bigger thoughts about a beautiful caramelized milk cake with blueberries and Earl Grey ice cream or whatever. Well,
1: you so you've been on the background here. Let's let's break down a little bit the difference between these two different kinds of dessert menus, because I think that it's not always obvious that, you know, if there's an apple crumble on the menu or if there's a scoop of ice cream or if there's a cookie plate to the diner, that sort of plays right into your comfort food brainstem kind of, oh my God, I love this. This is nourishing in an emotional way. But the other communication that's happening there is we don't have a pastry chef working in the kitchen. We're scooping ice cream onto a plate, or somebody came in this morning and made 14 hotel pans of apple crumble. So, so there are two very different ways that restaurants can approach their programs, and it's not always apparent, I think, unless you know what to look for, that you're contributing or not contributing to the death of pastry.
2: Right. I guess I'm always sad when I see a list of five or six desserts that look like nobody cares about them. Just put two desserts on and make them really good. And it is not that hard to make a dessert that is going to be universally loved. And that has that extra edge of appreciation of it too. You know, you thought to put a, a smidge of cardamom in the streusel for the apple crumble, <laughs> you know, whatever. Just something right. to kind of give mm-hmm. it like, you're not going through the motions. You're not hostile about your yeah. dessert menu.
1: Well, you and I, Bill, were out to lunch right before we recorded this podcast. And I noticed that when the server was talking to us about the dessert menu, he focused in on a particular cake and he said, we make it in-house. And like for me, that was like, wait, I assumed you made everything in-house. Now you've cast everything under a shadow.
2: See, it's interesting to me, because I heard that and I thought, you're especially selling that because cakes are the one thing that are often, you know, are brought in so often. So I thought that you were just, rein- I thought that server was just reinforcing the fact that we did in fact make this in-house.
1: You're so much more generous than <laughs> I, I suppose, <laughs> I don't know.
2: I have to stay
0: optimistic to keep doing this I mean, for it, years yeah, and c- years. It could be one of those weird selling techniques, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Like, well, you must, you must have so much expertise in service styles now. Like you've eaten in uncountable hundreds of restaurants over the last year. Yes. You know, these upsell techniques, the eater upsell, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's
2: hard. Upselling is one thing that's hard for me to, to notice because I, I suppose wine upsell really pisses me off. Most sommeliers, are so happy when you come in and say, "Listen, I don't want to spend more than sixty dollars, but I'm really open-minded. Like, what do you got that you're really loving, like, right now?" Um, it's it's the ones that that don't listen to me or the servers that want to tell me that the two hundred and twenty dollar bottle of you know white burgundy is just the bomb diggity. You know, <laughs> shit, it's the bomb diggity, but I'm not blowing that dude so i have noticed a lot of people hold on let me think for a minute because i've not had some i've actually not had some great service experiences here in new york
1: really Uh, yeah
0: um welcome to the club (laughs) i was actually a little
2: surprised i thought it's here we are in the center of the dining universe one dude last night kind of came on strong and really confident and then just ignored us for the rest of the night and when we had placed our order, and we were (laughs) handing our menus back to him, and I wanted to hang on to it for a minute, frankly, to photograph it. Um, He was making like the gimme, gimme, gimme hand motion without even speaking up, and I was looking down at it, and one of my table mates had to be
0: like, he's going to hold on to it for a minute. He was like, oh, I'm sorry. Am I... Inconveniencing you. See, I find this really interesting because in the past few years, I feel like there have been a lot of I mean, critics, food writers talking about like the death of service and stuff and mm-hmm. how everything's gotten so casual for some reason. And um, like it's,
1: the backless chair is designed to get you out as soon as possible. Oh, and
0: yeah. And just, you know, it's the, just all about the food and the kitchen. And whenever the chef wants, the food's going to come out whenever it comes out because, you yeah. know, that's, the chef cooked it, so it's hot. Right. Uh,
1: It's like the diner is the least important person. Oh, thank you.
0: Because that's exactly, I have encountered that in nearly
2: every restaurant I've eaten in New York and on this trip, where
1: I have this habit,
2: like, you know, you're sitting down and you're looking at the cocktail list, and the beverage component is, you know, as important to the menu in some ways these days. And so I want to order one appetizer and sort of look at the menu for a minute. And in every case, everyone has a variation of... Ooh, I'm sorry, the chef requests that you order the whole meal at once. And I'm, I'm just like, come on, you know. And then it's not even that well paced. It's not like you've done me this extravagant service of pacing my menu so gloriously that the appetizers and the entrees and the desserts arrive, you know, at exactly the moment I want them. I even felt like at lunch today.
0: It took about eight minutes longer to receive our entrees than I would have liked. So that's something that you notice more in New York than in other parts of the country? I nowhere else do I notice this thing where it's like you've got to order your whole meal
2: right now.
1: New York is the land of assholes.
2: Yep. <laughs> well, it, we're just yeah, cooking it, we're there eating to, it, yeah, Serving we're it there at the chef's pleasure and I'm that's that's not how it rolls in the rest of the country. But that
1: is changing a little bit, I think. I I have felt like the chefs that were the pioneers of this kind of anti-diner way of cooking and way of decorating their restaurants. Not that they would ever want to be described that way, but I'm thinking, you know, David Chang in particular, who sort of was the king of the uncomfortable backless wooden stools with pokey corners. That made, it,
0: made it desirable, yeah.
1: Like, yeah, like suffer for the art kind of thing for the diner. I mean, even David Chang has been speaking up lately about how he's been falling in love again with the kind of classical continental French cuisine of La Louis and Danielle. And he's he's sort of moving back towards this idea of like service and opulence and subtlety as opposed to this kind of like, fuck you, eat a pork cheek, like,
0: you know, kind of way of You're cooking. You're in a loud box on a stool. Yeah. Go, eat. The food comes out.
1: Eat the goddamn food. Get out. Here's a poster of Don McEnroe.
0: Well, I hope that with this um, interest that
2: Mr. Chang has taken in continental cuisine that the, a grander style of service returns as well. I mean, in continental restaurants, let's be very clear, died for a uh, you know, good cause. But there were some good ideas in there. The, the sense of subtlety in the food, this, the graciousness behind the service, an attentiveness, a human kindness, all those things I would love to see more of. Wow. Restaurants again.
0: Off the top of your head, where did you have the most, the best service on the road? I would say Blue Hill
2: Stone Barns. It's
0: Dan Barber's restaurant. It's about 40 minutes outside
2: of New York City on an estate that was previously a dairy farm in the Rockefeller family. And the concept there is that, first of all, the food is very close to the land. And um, the vegetables are absolutely as important as the, the meats there. And it's all super seasonal in a world that uses that word too much. You know, this is the one where you go, I get it. This came out <laughs> of the ground this morning. And um, so the, the service works with you to develop your own menu. It's a tasting menu format, but they ask you how hungry or not you are, how long you want to eat. For this evening, and and they really w- communicate with the kitchen throughout the meal. It's it's quietly revolutionary, really. And and there's one lovely moment usually during the the evening where you get up and they escort you to another part of the uh, building or the property. When uh, Amanda Clute and I went, we sat in a a former compost shed, and <laughs> had you know DIY tacos where the, the instead of tortillas we had big thin slices of kohlrabi, and it was all it just.
1: You have a dreamy look on your face. Yeah, I, I, you it know? was yeah.
2: dreamy. It was. That's exactly. <laughs> thank you. Was that thank your, you for finding my adjective. Was well, that? No, your, I mean, <laughs> I
1: could see you sort of like getting lost into this beautiful reverie. I mean, and and yeah, I I love that restaurant. I mean, it's one of my favorites of all time. I totally. I feel very validated that you <laughs> that your opinion that your opinion lines up with mine. Was
0: that your favorite favorite of the of the journey? Yeah, people like to ask me this question. Uh,
2: <laughs> I I will give you three favorites. Stone Barns was absolutely one of them. Zahav in Philadelphia. I'm super obsessed with Middle Eastern food right now, and partly obsessed with Middle Eastern food because of my meal at Zahav. It sort of sent me on this journey of, of inquiry, where I'm, I'm fascinated by all the countries there and how they play into the cuisine, the changing cuisine of Israel, which is what Michael Samolinoff does there. So Loves Hav, and then Bennu in San Francisco is the other one. Corey Lee was the chef de cuisine at the French Laundry. He worked with that company for almost a decade And now he does these beautiful tasting menus that really bring in the flavors of Korea and China. He's Korean by birth and some beautiful, wonderful, weird things. Sea cucumber and tofu for dessert and all these things that don't seem like it would all work, but it does.
1: All three of those restaurants are kind of places that I think bring a kind of formality and reverence to something that isn't traditional tasting menu cuisine. You're on a literal farm at Stone Barns and you're traveling around the Middle East at Zahab mm. and you're thinking about the interplay of kind of Korean identity and American identity at Bennu.
2: I guess I do like these places where the food is is definitely forging new territory, but the hospitality brings in a, an aspect of tradition of,
0: of real warmth and welcome. So Bill, we got some lightning round questions for you.
1: So just Say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. We're not going to edit this. All
0: right. (laughs) (laughs) What is your airport vice? Popeye's fried chicken. Oh, man, that's not even a vice. That's just straight up delicious. Oh, it's either that or nothing.
1: Also, what airport has Popeye's? I want to go to that airport. Atlanta
0: airport has Popeye's
1: (gasps) fried chicken. Atlanta airport's the best food It is. (laughs) Okay. What would your last meal be?
2: A salad of blood oranges and avocado. Crab cakes from somewhere in Baltimore. I'm from Baltimore. And then a peach crisp for dessert with
0: bourbon vanilla bean ice cream. Sounds amazing. So what is your favorite social media platform? Do you have one? Instagram. Instagram. You're good at it, man. Well, because I've had to learn how to take
2: pictures in the last year. And so (laughs) now now it was a part of journalism that I never really uh embraced and and there are some publications that I worked for where I think the photographers probably hated me and and now I get it I get how important that is and it's it's been really fun to embrace photography and Instagram
1: what's your Instagram handle
2: bill underscore Addison a-d-d-i-s-o-n
1: all right what is your go-to drink order when you're at a bar you've never been to before Negroni what's your favorite tv show The Americans. And
0: looking, I'll say that. It's a tie. (laughs) If you weren't a food writer, what would you be? A spy for the CIA or a wine buyer?
1: Is this because you're watching The Americans that you want to be a spy?
2: (laughs) I wanted to be a spy when I was a kid. Now, in in a sense, I am.
1: What's the album that you always blast on a road trip?
2: Blue by Joni Mitchell.
1: Do you sing along? Yes. Can you sing us a line? I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, traveling,
0: traveling. Whoa. That was amazing. (laughs) Among your many (laughs) hidden talents, didn't know you were so good at doing a Joni Mitchell. (laughs) There you go.
1: What's your go-to recipe when you're cooking for yourself at home?
2: I'm pausing because I so rarely cook at home, sadly. It's... uh, Pasta with, like, smushed broccoli and Parmesan, a a Joyce Goldstein recipe. And finally, what is your favorite dessert? Blood orange caramel ice cream, which is something that I came up with
0: when I was a pastry chef, and I love that.
1: You made it up. You made up blood orange caramel ice cream?
0: Uh, Yeah. I can't even really quite imagine what that tastes like, although Um, those things are delicious. I'll make it for you, Greg.
1: We're going to hold you to that. Thanks for being with us, Bill. Bill Addison is Eater's roving restaurant critic, traveling the entire country. If you are careful, you might see him in a city near you, but you probably won't because he's anonymous. Thanks for being with us, Bill. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks, Bill. On the next episode of The Eater Upsell, Helen and I will chat with Jen Ag, the restaurateur behind The Black Hoof in Toronto, and the author of a forthcoming memoir. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell.
1: And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff.
0: The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone.
1: Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Buckema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Klute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.